0: Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens discuss new opportunities in the Alts universe, from direct investments to DSTs, opportunity zones, private equity, and more. We cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson.
2: And I'm your co-host, Andy Higgins.
1: Hey, Andy. Good to be here back with you again. Joining Andy and I today on the podcast is president and CEO of the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives, Tony Chireso. Tony joins us today from Southlake, Texas. Tony, thanks for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jimmy. And uh, Andy, I'm glad to be here with both of you. Glad to uh, be here with you today as well, Tony. You joined me on my other podcast, the Opportunity Zones podcast, a couple years ago. Uh, had a good episode discussing how Opportunity Zones fit into the larger alts universe. Uh, I'll be sure to link to that episode in the show notes for today's episode at altsdb.com. But to start us off, uh, let's talk about alts, Tony. So the IPA has a lot of members, and you cover a specific set of alternative investments. Alternative investments is a big term that can be defined in many different ways. It's a really big universe. So help us out here, Tony, what does the IPA, your Institute for Portfolio Alternatives, cover specifically? And who are your members?
3: Well, Jimmy, uh, we we cover several different investment strategies. All of them are non-traded and are only sold through registered financial advisors. So they include Publicly registered non-traded REITs, publicly registered non-traded business development corporations, uh, private offerings, which include, and we'll get into more specifics later, strategies like 1031, conservation, easements, energy, opportunity zones, private equity, private preferred securities, and then closed-end funds and interval funds. Primarily focused around real estate and real estate credit, Obviously, when we talk about private equity, that's outside of the real estate. But I would say the majority of the investment strategies or the theses are focused on uh, commercial real estate.
1: Gotcha. And then, and then, who are some of your members, or what types of investments do they represent specifically?
3: So our members range in, in I would say, size. Uh, some are very uh, uh, discreet boutique firms that focus on a very specific investment strategy like 1031 like-kind exchanges or opportunity zones. They may bring out, they may be serial issuers of private offerings, but their offerings may range anywhere between 5 to $50, $75 million. And they may have one or two offerings a year. And then we have on the other side of the spectrum, large institutional players. There has been a significant shift in the size and the scope of the offerings that have come into the private alternative universe. Firms like Blackstone, Brookfield, Starwood, Nuveen, JOL, you know, and go on, Pimco, for example. They're usually bringing out very significant perpetual life programs focused on. Uh, real estate and real estate credit, and more on the publicly registered non-traded REIT and BDC side. They also have the interful funds, which are perpetual life programs as well.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So some institutional players there, certainly with, with some of the names you just mentioned. So the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives, one of your mandates or your mission is to be an advocate for awareness of portfolio diversifying investments. And that's, that's one of the roles of alternatives is to serve as portfolio diversifiers. But, but why, in addition to that, should investors and advisors, in your view, Tony, consider including alternative investments in an investment portfolio?
3: It's a great question, Jimmy. What we're seeing nowadays, and especially... Sort of this shift away from defined benefit plans that individuals like my parents in my previous career when I worked at Verizon, I had access to. And those defined benefit plans, if you really look into them, had a very diverse portfolio. You had your stocks, bonds, as well as allocations to private alternative investments. And what you've seen actually over a period of time, both from an institutional perspective and in the benefit space is larger allocations to alternative investment strategies, uh, creating some diversification away from your traditional equity markets, which tend to be fairly volatile. And we saw that volatility um, in the early onset of COVID last year where the markets took a significant hit, while the private sector wasn't unaffected, but it wasn't affected at the level that the public markets were, and actually recovered quite quickly compared to the public markets. But today, when you look at the next generation, my kids, for example, they don't have access to find better plans. They have access to defined contribution plans. And those defined contribution plans are offer them investment strategies like mutual funds and ETFs that, frankly, move with the equity markets. So their ability to diversify their retirement holdings and actually have a well-balanced investment portfolio has diminished as a result of some of the shifts in just retirement planning Uh, as as one point. The other interesting point to to note is that when you look back in time, the average mainstream investor didn't have access to these strategies. You had to be a high net worth family office, work with big banks to be able to have access to commercial real estate, commercial real estate credit, private equity, and middle market lending. And what our members have been able to do is democratize what was institutional investment opportunities and put them in the hands or at least have make them accessible to the main street investor again the whole idea is to create some a, a better balanced portfolio and again i want to stress one thing these investment strategies are not for everybody. Okay, they require, and that's one of the reasons why I preface them at the beginning of the, our conversation. That um, all our members who structure and offer these alternative investment opportunities only distribute them through professional financial advisors, broker-dealers, registered investment advisors, and in the, in the wirehouses. It is important that when you're looking at making an investment in any one of these strategies, and it's true for even stocks and bonds as well, you look at your portfolio, you look at what's suitable, what's not suitable, and your risk tolerance, and that requires a lot of thought and analysis, and it varies, and it changes over time. But one of the things that we have found that, especially as the market has continued to evolve and the strategies continue to evolve, and we have provided more access to these different strategies, is that more people are gravitating towards these types of investments to provide that diversification that they didn't have access to before. And part of that has to do with the fact that it provides several different things. It it provides uh, some of the strategies have an income focus. And some of them have a growth focus and others have a combination of both. So although you can buy stocks with dividends um, that provide some income and you're hoping for the growth, what these investment strategies are designed is for um, a specific need of an individual retail investor, uh, whether it's income or growth. Right. That's really interesting,
1: Tony, that shift that you identified from defined benefit plans being offered through your employer, typically, to the shift toward defined contribution plans now for retirement plans, it really puts the burden of diversification and, and finding investment options on the investor or or that investor's advisor. So uh, the fact that your members have helped democratize institutional investment opportunities for Main Street investors, as you put it, is crucially needed, uh, in large part because of that shift. That's that That's a really interesting point that you bring up. I wanted to discuss with you Regulation Best Interest or Regulation BI or Reg BI that was recently passed just a couple years ago and, and is still kind of undergoing some changes. How might any changes to that regulation impact alternatives and, and what are you expecting to unfold there?
3: Yeah, so as you noted, it was a long, drawn-out process, the IPA along with a number of other Uh, financial trades were actively engaged in in some conversations with the the, the department of labor as they're moving the reg bi initiative forward and as you may know going back in history there was a group litigation that was successful the sec actually rolled out reg bi guidelines and eventually rolled out some reg bi guidelines the one thing that never really sat well with one particular regulator the state regulators was sort of the scope of what the SEC implemented. And frankly, the state regulators continue to believe that the Reg BI has fallen short in delivering what was supposed to be more stringent guidelines, more of a fiduciary analysis, and I should say, put the broker who's representing these investment strategies more in a fiduciary role as it relates to making recommendations. Let me qualify that. So originally, when an advisor was meeting with a client, it was more of a suitability standard. Is this investment strategy suitable for a particular investor based on a variety of different metrics? Now, as a result of Reg BI, And actually, it's been a very good shift to a greater extent because it's it's modernized investment strategies, provided additional options to retail investors. And frankly, it's pushed the industry to more and more transparency. That being said, the state regulators still believe that there's been a significant shortfall in the implementation and sort of the broader representation around these investment strategies or complex products, as they call them. And they've been advancing a variety of different initiatives, one specific initiative that they're on their third phase of doing a market survey with those individuals, the broker dealers, registered investment advisors that actually represent these products. And the implications of that, Jimmy and Andy, are this. If they're successful, and the states can um, and have adopted individual state Reg BI requirements, a little bit different, maybe some of it's a restatement of what the SEC has adopted, but in, in some cases have have included some additional things that those license within the state are required to follow. But as they move and in, in advance their surveys, what they're they just released a survey a couple of weeks ago where they're advancing a conversation with the SEC and the Department of Labor. That, what has been implemented from a financial advisory perspective around Reg BI falls short of what was intended by the SEC. And we'll be proposing some very different standards. And hopefully, with the new leadership at the SEC, they're hopeful that there'll be a tightening of the standards. Now, I, I say that all from this perspective as you put additional standards and restrictions around, those individuals, that uh, those financial professionals that actually meet with the Main Street investor around particular investment strategies, and you add the level of risk related to them offering these diversified investment strategies. The financial advisory community has to ask themselves a question of whether that they want to include as part of A portfolio of investments that they're going to represent or offer to their clients, whether they want to offer these complex products. And frankly, what we have found because of state regulatory pressures, whether it's this very loose biased arbitration process that's out in in the marketplace, that a lot of brokers and advisors have moved away and stepped back from um, offering private offerings. Now, what that could do is have a chilling effect on sort of the future growth of this market.
2: That's really interesting, you know, that you mentioned the, the potential chilling effect, and that makes sense. I mean, what Jimmy and I have seen working at over at our other property, um, the on Zones database, is at least in that particular sector, you know, a lot of growth in the, uh, the direct-to-consumer <laughs> type of sales cycle. And so it's the listeners of that podcast, you know, they tend to be self-directed investors. And so in some cases, you know, they're not even, you know, working with with a financial planner. Um, it, it is kind of interesting because another point you brought up, Tony, was that the trend of increase of democratization, right? So some of the investment minimums um, for some of these alternative products seem to be going down over time. So, it, you know, it's all relative, but I, I kind of look at it like maybe a product that was only available to ultra high net worth a, a generation ago is now available to um, any accredited investor right so it's not quite truly mass market but certainly moving in that direction and, and writing you know well jimmy and i we, we launched the alternative investment database and in, in this podcast um just a couple months ago and um, we've been almost surprised by by how much interest there is in in alts in in this podcast um obviously we're very bullish on it or or we wouldn't have launched the property but but even so I recently published a news story about how non-traded REITs are seeing record inflows this year, and it looks like that's also the case with DSTs, so I'm working on a story on that for the site. So it seems like the industry overall is going gangbusters. So I wanted to ask you, beyond just that regulatory trend that you mentioned, are there other trends that you would identify? For instance, certain wrappers... Gaining ground relative to to other rappers, especially different real estate products, or are there any other big picture trends that you've identified in the alts industry that you think could play out in the next couple of years?
3: Yeah, so look, if I can, and let me go back to something you said, and I'll circle back and tie into your question. You said something really interesting, but generally speaking, about eighty five percent of the current funds in the market require. A professional financial advisor involved with the sale and the representation. The rest of it either are funds that haven't been uh, filed on a Form D yet and or are direct-to-consumer. There was an expectation a number of years ago that the direct-to-consumer strategies would potentially overtake the 506B strategies that require and go through a financial advisor. And it goes to something you said, and it really actually goes back to what uh, some of the regulators' concerns are around the complexity of these investment strategies. So there are some sophisticated investors that have the capability of doing their own due diligence, managing their own portfolios. And for a direct-to-consumer strategy, it works well for them. But I will tell you, the majority of mainstream investors would be challenged with going through the perspectives, really making sure that they clearly understand what they're investing in, and also making sure how that fits into their overall retirement planning and portfolio. So I wanted to just sort of put that in perspective. Your point, as you indicated, we've seen a surge in a couple areas this year and a resurgence in, in one particular strategy. So specifically around publicly registered non-traded REITs, that market has exploded. It continues to explode and large part is being led by Blackstone. They are certainly the, the, the primary market a driver behind that. But because they have sort of sowed the ground, what we have seen are the Brookfields, the Starwoods, the KKRs and a number of other firms that have offerings, perpetual life NAV or tender offer REITs that are in the market right now. So you're going to continue to see that market evolve and grow. Year-to-date through August, I think you know, it was just shy of $25 billion of capital has been raised in that particular sector. What we've seen in a resurgence, and this is, again, being led by firms like Blackstone and a few others, is what we call BDC 2.0. And right now, we had a real chilling cooling off of BDC capital flows a number of years ago, and it would almost ground to a halt in 2020. But year-to-date in uh, 2021, close to $9 billion of capital, and a large reason for that is the investment strategies and the structures have changed significantly. Um it the access to retail investors through distribution channels like Wirehouses and the Registered Investment Advisory Committee has changed significantly. And the pedigree of the issuers has changed. When you have a KKR or Blackstone or or the like coming into the market where they have a long history of executing these strategies on behalf of institutional investors, they're bringing that pedigree down to the mainstream investor. So there's an increased appetite on those particular strategies. Interval Fund space has exploded. Matter of fact, last week uh, in New York, we hosted the first ever closed-end Interval Fund Conference as a result of feedback from members saying this is a market that is on the cusp of of taking off um, significantly. And we need to better understand how we educate the market. Best practices and standards and guidelines so that we're ahead of the curve. This year day to date, you know, just shy of $12 billion has been raised in the interval fund space. And then when we get into the privates, that breaks down into a lot of different buckets, and, and the numbers aren't as huge, but they are significant nonetheless. So, for example, 1031 exchanges, they're projecting that this year is going to be about a $6 billion marketplace. That's a huge number. And when you think about the fact that up until, I would say, a month ago, maybe a little bit longer, there was a significant concern that that whole sector, that's, that, that ability to do a uh, like exchange would be reduced or eliminated entirely. President Biden had proposed a very strong res- restriction on the ability to do 1031 exchanges. As you get into the different strategies, there's a private equity and private debt, is an investment strategy that is wrapped in private placements wrapper that has, has gained in popularity. Most mainstream investors didn't have access to private equity. You had to have be a high net worth individual with a strong connections at the big banks to be able to get in on some of these new and emerging companies. And that marketplace is going to be somewhere around a $3 billion marketplace this year and growing actually at a very significant pace. So not only are we seeing institutional players come in with what I would call 2.0 versions of the wrappers, REITs, BDCs, preferred stock offerings, interval funds, but you're also seeing a broadening of sort of the distribution marketplace through registered investment advisors who who've now better understood how they actually can use these investments to create a better balance and sort of buffers within their clients portfolios
2: that makes a lot of sense i mean and that's that's our audience here at the alternative investment podcast is is primarily self-directed high net worth investors as well as rias and yeah i think i'm spotting uh, the same trends that, that you are it seems like everything is Bullish right now in the alt universe. I was speaking at Oz Pitch Day, you know, the recent conference, our event, and one of the things I mentioned was that if you take a, a typical bond fund right now that's in an investor's taxable account, even a junk bond account, the typical yield right now is negative on a real basis after you take into account inflation, and then never mind the fact in a taxable account, of course, you also pay taxes on on the nominal income that the bond fund would generate. And so I think some driving the shift into alts is, is simply a chase for yield, right? And the other interesting thing is you mentioned, Tony, that most of the products or most of the sponsors in the IPA deal with real estate, right, or, or real estate credit. And we're coming off a year where real estate as an asset class is up, what, like 20% or something? And, and typically yep. after a bull run like that might be the wrong time. To put money in, right, but I'm almost personally I'm almost agnostic about it, right because who knows if inflation will sustain at five percent or higher for the medium term? who knows exactly where interest rates will go et-, et cetera et cetera but my question is when you talk with investors or or sponsors, is your sense that folks are are really bullish about these products or is it more almost like a defensive type move where in- investors are saying, well, I'm getting negative real yields on my bond funds. So I'm going to look elsewhere to see if I can get something, some kind of positive return.
3: I think it's a little bit of both.
2: Frankly, a lot of folks have are starting to look at
3: this and wondering where the markets are going to go in the next six, twelve, eighteen months. Whether some of the volatility, some volatility may may per- persist, or or we may see some some significant changes in the markets as a result of some of the legislation that's moving forward uh, in Congress and or the upcoming elections, midterm elections, which could shift things significantly, and all that has a chilling effect on the public markets, as you well know. So, you know, from a defensive position, I see that being so logically why some folks are are gravitating to alternative investments. But I think, as you look at the different asset classes and you look at the long-term benefits that commercial real estate and real estate credit has offered uh, in investors it marries up and matches up uh, really nice, especially with retirement savers. And so we're you know, going back to the conversation around defined benefits and defined contributions, we've had an initiative here at the IPA, a board-level initiative for the last five years, working with Department of Labor and others in pulling in a coalition groups on how do we replicate the diversification that was included in defined benefit plans in a defined contribution plan. And that's because these investment strategies, uh, all of them for the most part, uh, whether they're publicly registered or in private wrappers, clearly line up with the long-term nature of retirement savers. And whether you have both from the standpoint of income, as well as some of the tax benefits these strategies uh, represent and offer.
1: Well, fantastic, Tony. I really want to thank you for all the insights that you've provided today. We're getting close to running out of time here. But before we go, you mentioned a few minutes ago your closed and interval funds conference that you hosted. uh, I think it was this uh, last week, actually, earlier this month in November. IPA puts on numerous events every year. What are some upcoming IPA events that you're looking forward to in 2022? And where can our listeners go to learn more about them?
3: So the first that we're launching is going to be in February of uh, 2022. Specifically, it's going to be here, actually, in Grapevine, Texas. It's going to be held the week of uh, the 15th. Uh, actually, it's going to be Tuesday the 15th, 16th, to 17th. It's going to be focused on private offerings. Um, when we were talking a little bit earlier, earlier, we were talking about 1031 exchanges, conservation easements, energy, managed futures, opportunity zones. Uh, preferred offerings in, in like private equity. So it's going to have a very specific f- focus on not the publicly registered, but the private offerings. You can find information on the IPA website at IPA.com. Under conferences, you'll see uh, the details behind that. In June, back here in Grapevine, Texas, we're going to host a publicly registered real estate symposium. That will include investment strategies like the non-traded REITs, and it will pull in some further discussions around interval funds that have investments in commercial real estate. One is a publicly registered wrapper, and then another one is all the private wrappers that are not publicly registered. So we're, we're segregating those. And as you mentioned, we have Five different events a year, two of them are are flagship events. One's in D.C. It's in May, uh, primarily focused on sort of our advocacy, legislative and regulatory advocacy. And IPA Vision is our largest event, and that's always held in September. So they're very diverse in regards to the attendance from the entire alternative investment community, and it represents the voices both from the distribution partner, asset managers, and the other stakeholders.
1: Excellent. Well, really valuable events for the industry. I'm looking forward to going to one or two of them next year as my schedule allows. And for our listeners out there today, please do head over to IPA.com to learn more about the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives and the events that they hold. And, And also, as always, I will be producing show notes for this episode on the AltsDB website. You can find those show notes at altsdb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that we discussed today with our guest, Tony Chireso. Tony, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Andy, thank you for having me.
0: That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com/podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.